History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, episode 61, Blood on the Eurymedon. It's been a minute since we talked narrative between my accidental hiatuses and the last couple episodes on the Vendidad and Xerxes' domestic policies. So let's review. The last chronological narrative episode was actually all the way back in episode 55, when we left the Aegean and Anatolia in an absolute mess of marauding Athenians around the year 477 BC. After the twin defeats at Plataea and Mycale, Persia was put on the defensive, while the Greeks launched a counteroffensive in 479. At first, this meant taking strategic cities and pushing the Persian garrisons out of Europe. The Spartan regent Pausanias switched sides to assist the great king retake Byzantium, and he died for his trouble when he went home in 470. The Hellenic League fractured after the Athenians got tired of Spartan leadership while occupying Byzantium. Sparta and their Peloponnesian League packed up their toys and went home, while the Athenians formed the new Delian League in which everyone else paid them to have the only functioning military in the alliance and keep fighting Persia for them. No way that could possibly go wrong. Nominally supporting Greeks in Persian territory with desires to go into revolt, the Delian League spent the next few years peeling islands and the northern coast of the Aegean out of Persian hands until the Thracian city of Dorsicus was the last Persian garrison in Europe. Meanwhile, episode 56 followed the Persian domestic response. 
as Achaemenid control collapsed in Macedon, Thrace, and the Black Sea, the strategy had to change. Artabazos, the surviving general from Plataea, became the satrap of Phrygia and the leading Persian commander on the Western Front. Iranian colonists and garrisons were settled in Anatolia in large numbers for the first time, and Greek exiles in Xerxes' court were given territory of their own in potentially rebellious areas to maintain Persian control overall. After about 477, it seems the situation stalemated on both sides. There are some hints from the Greek historian Thucydides that Pausanias may have led a Persian campaign in Thrace, but not much came of it. At the same time, most of the Aegean islands that had been Persian subjects for most of the last 20 years fell into the Athenian orbit. This swift Greek success was due in no small part to the sudden change in naval warfare. The disastrous battles at Salome and Mycale left the Persian fleet in tatters. The Phoenician ships were sent home between the last two battles, but with Greek defections, rebellions, and the ships destroyed on campaign, Xerxes' mighty 600-ship fleet from 481 was reduced to less than a third its original size, while Athens was able to maintain a navy of more than 200 ships. In less than 13 years, Athens went from almost no naval force at all to the largest navy in the Aegean, and Persia went from the indisputable naval power to struggling to keep up with a provincial, unruly city-state. Most unfortunately, the next decade of Aegean history is almost entirely blank in our sources. Relations between the Delian League, meaning Athens, and Sparta, along with its Peloponnesian League, worsened, but the Athenian raison d'etre was still technically Persian aggression. Despite that, none of our three major sources have anything to say about the Greco-Persian conflict in the years after 477. Thucydides, writing just a few decades later, was mostly concerned with the coming Peloponnesian Wars in Greece, and doesn't give specific dates in his first book, while the Roman historians Diodorus Siculus and Plutarch were writing three and four hundred years later respectively, and present different dates for the same events. In fact, scholars even have a name for this period, the Pentaconteia, a Greek word meaning a period of 50 years. The Pentaconteia, technically just shy of 50 years, covers from 479 to 432, basically from the end of Xerxes' invasion and Herodotus's most detailed narrative to the beginning of the Second Peloponnesian War and Thucydides' more detailed narrative. Of course, plenty happened in that span, including the events I've mentioned in recent narrative episodes and a First Peloponnesian War that we'll at least touch on later, but all of it is very poorly documented. The scarce documentation 
made worse by Greek and Roman authors' greater focus on the wars in Greece, makes it hard to understand where the events we're talking about today even came from. As far as the documentation is concerned, there is almost a decade of peace between Persia and an alliance formed with the specific goal of combating Persia. Then, all of a sudden, the Athenian general Cimon invaded Persian territory. But naturally, there's more to it if you know where to look. This invasion is remembered primarily for a battle fought alongside the Eurymedon River, now known as the Kopruchai in southwestern Turkey. Pinning down the date is somewhere between difficult and impossible, but is actually somewhat more important in telling the history of Persia than it is for Greece. After 477, we really only have two reliable dates surrounding this Greek invasion, and one is Pausanias's return to and death in Greece around 470, or at least more or less based on the events mentioned by Thucydides. The other is the so-called Rebellion of Thassos, after Cimon's invasion in 465. Even arriving at this later date is a complex mess. A century later, the Athenian orator Aeschines mentioned a failed Athenian attempt to build a colony called Enea Hodoi near a Thracian gold mine. Coincidentally, this was the same gold mine that Hestius of Miletus had tried to colonize after Darius's Scythian campaign 50 years earlier. Thirty years later, it became the site of Amphipolis on Athens' second attempt, but this attempt to build a city at Enea Hodoi was a miserable failure, and the 10,000 colonists sent by Athens were either killed or enslaved by local Thracians. Possibly because those Thracians wanted the gold mine. Aeschines placed that in the reign of Lysithius as the eponymous archon in Athens, and from Diodorus Siculus, the later Roman author, we know that was 465. Thucydides briefly mentions the failure at Aenea Hodoi in conjunction with the rebellion of Thassos, Therefore, Thassos was in 465 too. And this is how all of the dates work for almost the rest of the Achaemenid period. The Thassian revolt isn't all that relevant to us, but since I have to mention it so much, you should probably know that Thassos was a member of the Delian League and therefore had to provide either ships or tribute to Athens every year. Ostensibly, this was to support campaigns against Persia, but in reality, most of it went to fund rebuilding projects in Athens and lining Athenian pockets. Thassos had a long naval tradition and ambitions to control the same gold mines at Enea Hodoi that everyone else seemed to want. Between Athenian policy and the attempt to colonize in the same location that Thassos also wanted to steal Thracian gold, Thassos stopped paying tribute to the Delian League. Athens responded with a brutal two-year siege that resulted in the destruction of all Thassian defenses and increased tribute burdens. 
As I said, the war with Thassos came after Cimon's battle on the Eurymedon, but it was not the first such rebellion against Athenian policies in the Delian League. Sometime prior to the Battle of the Eurymedon, according to Thucydides, the island of Naxos also rebelled. Last time we encountered Naxos, it had just escaped Persian control again as Xerxes' naval power collapsed in the Aegean. Supposedly, the Delian League was a voluntary association. But this is what Thucydides has to say. After Naxos left the Confederacy, and war ensued, and she had to return after a siege, this was the first instance of the Confederation being forced to subjugate an allied city, a precedent which was followed by that of the rest in the order which circumstances prescribed. That is to say, Naxos was the first to rebel, and the first time Athens felt like it could and should force membership in the League, and the punishment was the same as described for Thassos. Thucydides continues, Of all of the causes of defection, that connected with arrears of tribute and vessels, and with failure of service, this was the chief. For the Athenians were very severe and exacting, and made themselves offensive by applying the screw of necessity to men who were not used to, and in fact, not disposed for any continuous labor. In some other respects, the Athenians were not the old popular rulers that they had been at first, and if they had more than their fair share of service, it was correspondingly easy for them to reduce any that tried to leave the Confederacy. For this, the Allies had themselves to blame. It was the wish to get off service making most of them arrange to pay their share of the expense, in money instead of ships, and so to avoid having to leave their homes. So on one hand, he's kind of right, and this is the view that scholars have taken forever after. If the Allies didn't want Athenian military dominance, they did have the option to fight for themselves. On the other hand... Being forced to subjugate an allied city is not how alliances work, Thucydides. Through a variety of small references, possible references, and undated chronologies, scholars place the rebellion of Naxos somewhere between 470 and 467. 470 is basically the earliest it could be if Thucydides is following anything even resembling chronological order. And 467 is as late as it could be to leave room for Cimon's invasion of Anatolia before reaching the rebellion at Thassos. Cimon's campaign itself also throws a bit of a wrench into the situation. The Roman biographer Plutarch suggests that Cimon was rewarded for some great victory by the Archon Apsephion in 469 BCE. Some scholars interpret this as the Battle of the Eurymedon. Maybe it's just because I don't like Plutarch, or maybe it's because a later date is more dramatic to the telling of Persian history, but I don't see why you'd assume that. Cimon was appointed strategos, 
a general of the Athenian military, in 478. He was responsible for a number of victories in more than a decade at the forefront of Athenian ambition, which included expelling the Persians from Aeon, and heck, the victory in question very plausibly could be the conquest of Naxos. So I am going to talk about Cimon's campaign as if it happened in 466 or 465. Ultimately, because I like that better than the other equally plausible option of 460 nice. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Because of the Near Dark Age during the Pentaconteia, the origins of the Eurymedon campaign are even harder to detect than the date. Our three sources so far yield almost nothing. Thucydides barely mentions it, only noting the major battles. Diodorus says more, but his chronology is a mess and seems to put events of 467 immediately after 477, and thus skipping whatever events actually played out in the intervening decade. There's actually a very real possibility that he was just trying to expand on Thucydides' chronology. It's basically the same list of events. Even Plutarch says very little in his biography of Cimon preferring to focus on his role in Athenian domestic politics as a demagogic defender of the status quo. 
But Plutarch does provide some hint of what was going on when he introduces the campaign by saying, And surely there was no one who humbled the great king himself and reduced his haughty spirit more than Kimon. For he did not let him go quietly away from Hellas, but followed right at his heels, as it were. And before the barbarians had come to a halt and taken breath, he sacked and overthrew here or subverted and annexed to the Hellenes there, until Asia from Ionia to Pamphylia was entirely cleared of Persian arms. Now, Pamphylia is the region we are addressing today, but Plutarch is hinting at one of the big open questions of the Pentaconteia. When exactly did the Persians lose control of the Ionian cities? In fact, the question could be broadened to when did Persia lose not just the Ionian city-states, but many of the northern Greek cities along the Black Sea coast as well. Between Thucydides and ancient fragments from tribute lists in Athens, we know most of, if not all of the cities that were enrolled or subjugated by the Delian League, by the 420s. When exactly all of them came into the League is not clear. Plutarch is suggesting that Cimon campaigned to wrest Ionia from Persian control prior to the Eurymedon campaign. So that at least covers the western slice of Anatolia. This lines up nicely with evidence we discussed in episode 56. Things like Pausanias expanding Persian control back into the Thracian Chersonies, and successful Persian raids against Miletus mentioned by Theseus. At the same time, many sources show that Xerxes and his satraps were shoring up defenses in Anatolia especially along waterways, so some kind of conflict was obviously happening. Another of Plutarch's biographies, The Life of Aristides, records the life and times of the one-time aristocratic rival to Themistocles and founder of the Delian League. According to Plutarch, after the League was firmly established and the Spartans had withdrawn their support, Aristides was put in charge of assessing the tribute or military requirements for new members. He also tells us that Aristides died in Pontus, on the northeast coast of Anatolia for some reason. Under normal circumstances, we think of this area as deep in Persian territory. But given his official duties the most plausible explanation is that Aristides was assessing new members of the Delian League closer to the Caucasus than to Greece itself. And in fact, we know that by the 420s, the Delian League controlled not just the cities of the Ionian coast, but many Greek cities and Pontus and even as far east as Crimea. Much of this territory was Persian last time we checked, but there's no record for when it changed hands. In fact, the last time we checked in, the Bosporus and Byzantium were back in Persian hands too, but by the time we reach Cimon's Eurymedon campaign, the Greek authors take it for granted that much of the Anatolian coast was controlled by Athens. 
In short, Cimon and the other Athenian generals spent those silent years from 470 to 465 campaigning against Persian forces under Artabazos and other local leaders, including local Greek tyrants. These campaigns likely saw successes for both sides, but very clearly the tide turned against Persia at some point. Rebuilding a navy to challenge Athens was expensive and time-consuming when the Persians did not have time. Athenian domination of the seas certainly enabled their domination of the coasts as well. I mentioned that Diodorus's timeline is compressed, but one thing he mentions might provide a little more structure. Immediately before describing the Eurymedon campaign itself, he mentions how Cimon campaigned along the Carian coast, besieging some cities and accepting surrender from others. That may have been the target of the campaign just before Eurymedon, slowly bringing Anatolia into the fold. Cornelius Nepos placed Aristides' death in 468 BC, suggesting that Athens was able to control the Bosporus and extend power in northern Anatolia before the Eurymedon campaign. Maybe Cimon was a part of those campaigns too, maybe he wasn't. What this does tell us is that Cimon's most famous expedition was the final piece of the puzzle, the southwest coast of Anatolia, including parts of Caria and Lycia, was the last stretch of Greek coastline in Persian hands. And as the last friendly coast in Anatolia, it was also the obvious launching point for the Persian counterattack. Which brings us to the campaign itself. Though Artabazos was apparently the military superior on the Western Front, and Artaphernes the Younger was the satrap of Lydia and the rest of southern Anatolia, neither of them took the field at this encounter. In their defense, both satraps were probably in their late 40s at the youngest by this time. Instead, the Persian army in Anatolia was gathering under the command of a general called Ferendatis, while the admiral Tithrotes, supposedly a bastard son of Xerxes, commanded the fleet. They were gathering their forces at the mouth of the Eurymedon River. There's not much to praise the Persian navy for during Xerxes' reign, but they did learn a lesson at Mycale. The fleet was left at anchor, rather than beached. In event of a surprise attack, the ships could sail to a more defensible position upriver or flee out to sea, rather than being left to Greek torches on the beach. We have no numbers for this Persian army, but it wasn't huge. I'll deal with exact numbers later. The real power behind this Persian counter-counteroffensive was a rebuilt fleet. Plutarch reports 350 ships. Diodorus gives 340. While not perfectly inside the usual 300 ships to a fleet scheme, there's always enough room for estimates and cargo ships to infiltrate the histories. It's at least a good ballpark, indicating that somewhere 
between 5 and 12,000 marines total were available to fight on the Persian side. Most estimates for an invasion fleet would guess somewhere in the ballpark of 7,500 marines on the Persian ships. And of course, when I say Persian ships, I really mean Phoenician ships. Especially following the loss of most of the Greek cities, the Persian naval burden fell heavily on Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Egypt. According to Plutarch, the last 80 ships were still being prepared in Cyprus when Athens heard about the Persian offensive. Whether those 80 are included in that 350 figure, or there were only 270 at the Eurymedon, isn't clear. The latter might make more sense. Cimon caught wind of this and mobilized Athenian forces. They sailed east to the coast of Caria, where they waited for other League members to send ships before a fleet of 200 triremes was ready, probably around 5,000 marines on board. Along the way, they made a brief stop at the partially Hellenized city in Lycia, Phacelus. Since there was a sizable Greek population, and it would otherwise represent a Persian port in their rear, Cimon made plans to besiege the city, liberate it, and make it an ally within the Delian League. Liberate and ally being used somewhat loosely. Fortunately for the people of Phacelus, some of the non-Athenians in that fleet had trade relations with the city and were able to negotiate a Phacelian surrender on the condition that they join the League and contribute both tribute and ships to support this ongoing campaign. Cimon's fleet, now including the Phacelians, continued toward the Eurymedon. As the Greek fleet approached, the Persian ships followed the plan and sailed up the river. Plutarch frames this as an act of Persian cowardice, trying to avoid a fight with the Greeks. But if they were really waiting at anchor, as he said just a few lines earlier, then they probably sailed inland to get their full crews on board from the main camp. It's not at all likely that the full complement of rowers, officers, and marines was sleeping at sea for days at a time when they could see a camp with tents. As the Greeks got closer, Tithrostes ordered his ships out of the river to square off with the invaders. Unlike the last two major naval engagements at Salome and Artemisium, there was no geographical advantage for the Greeks to use. These were Persian waters. The traditional staging area for Persian fleets in decades past. The Persians controlled the mouth of the river, and to quote Plutarch, nothing was achieved by them on the water which was worthy of such a force, but they straightway put about and made shore, where the foremost of them abandoned their ships and fled for refuge with the infantry, which was drawn up nearby. Those who were overtaken were destroyed with their ships. Cimon built bridges between pairs of triremes, sacrificing the agility that Themistocles had used to his advantage at Salome for the pure brawn of huge, 
floating platforms with two rams and ample room for their marines to maneuver in combat. The Athenians were also veterans of almost 15 years of non-stop campaigning. The Persian fleet was mostly new ships and presumably green crews. It was a blowout. In the open water south of Anatolia, the Persian fleet collapsed. The high-ranking officers, presumably including Tithrostes, reached the shore and abandoned their ships as their forebears had at Makale. Some managed to flee from the battle and head out to sea, but many others were destroyed or captured by the Athenians. In almost any other story, what happened next would probably be deemed apocryphal myth-making by historians, but Plutarch acknowledges how unrealistic it was in the life of Chemon. After watching the carnage at sea, Ferendatus ordered his army down to the beachhead to protect the survivors and make a show of force. Of course, there's no way a Greek with only a few thousand heavy infantry marines would attempt a land battle within moments of a sea battle if he could see just how outnumbered they were. As I said, we don't have any real numbers for the army here, but we know it was larger than whatever the Greeks could field. Discussion of Greek numbers almost always focuses on the hoplites, the heavy infantry who were functionally the same as the marines in a Greek navy. So in the case of the Battle of the Eurymedon, you'll see a maximum of 8,000 and probably closer to 5,000 men thrown around. But that's just the marines. Each trireme had about 200 rowers who could and did take the field as light infantry, called peltasts, when the ships made landfall. I've mentioned this before. At Macale, the Greek army was probably closer in makeup to the Persian army because of all these lightly equipped fighters. At the Eurymedon, that would be about 40,000 men, similar to the Greek force at Macale in 479 because the fleet was a similar size. By that logic, the Persian army was probably pretty similar this time too, meaning 50 to 60,000 strong, mostly light infantry as usual. Chemon didn't like those odds. His men were tired and they had just won an important victory. The Persian offensive was already broken before it could even begin. The Athenians could sail away, raid some more coastal towns, and conquer more allies into the Delian League but Chemon was convinced to make a play for the most significant victory since Macale and Plataea. Plutarch suggests it was a popular position. Maybe it was just expressed by the Istocratic marines, but Chemon was convinced to point his ships at the mouth of the Eurymedon and sail for the Persian army. We are left wanting for details about the battle that ensued. The Athenians disembarked, got into formation, and made battle against the Persians. Diodorus tells a wild tale of trickery and Greeks dressed in stolen Persian clothes, 
but basically every historian before and after him makes it clear that this was a pitched battle. Plutarch suggests that the Greeks took heavy losses, particularly in the hoplites' ranks, where the sons of noble Athenian families fought on the front lines. Despite this, the Persian army broke and fled up the banks of the Eurymedon, leaving 200 Persian ships in Athenian hands once again. As they had at Mycale, the Athenians took some as trophies and burned the rest, once again destroying years of naval buildup in a single engagement. Once the battlefield at Eurymedon had been dealt with, the Greeks got back on their ships. Cimon had received intelligence that the 80 ships from Cyprus had successfully diverted to a Cilician port called Hydrus. The Athenian fleet set sail and caught those ships before word could reach them about the army's defeat on the Eurymedon. All 80 ships were captured, most of them destroyed. None of our sources describe the rest of this expedition, but Plutarch implies that there were more cities conquered and or liberated. Apparently the plunder was so immense that Cimon used it to finance a massive building project in Athens, where, among other things, he built and landscaped the eventual site of Plato's academy. In some regards, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Plutarch says that some sources say a treaty was negotiated immediately following the Eurymedon campaign, while others say that the treaty came later. And the historian Callisthenes denies that the treaty existed at all. I'll deal with the supposed treaty negotiations between Athens and Persia in a few episodes, but even if official terms weren't negotiated, Persian policy changed. The Greek cities of Asia, be they Pontic, Aeolian, Ionian, or Doric, were gone. Many cities of Caria and Lycia left with them. Only cities further inland, like the Troad, or ruled by powerful Persian loyalists like Artemisia of Halicarnassus, remained in the great king's control. No more attempts would be made to retake this territory. Most of Persia's access to the Black Sea and about half the Mediterranean coast was cut off for decades. But that doesn't mean the war was over. No, when Pausanias defected to the Persian side, he retook the Thracian Chersonese for Xerxes. The next year, in 465 BC, while his comrades were besieging Thassos, Cimon was once again campaigning in the east. Given the scale of the siege at Thassos, Cimon was almost acting as a private citizen, sailing with just four triremes, maybe a thousand men including sailors. Cimon, the son of Miltiades, had fled this exact region 30 years earlier when his father found himself on the losing end of the first Ionian revolt and moved to Athens. Now, after leading a second successful Ionian liberation movement, Cimon returned to the Persian Chersonese, where he was probably able to call on allies who had known him and his father a generation earlier to assist him in chasing out the Persians. 
The Persian commanders in the Chersonese called in Thracian allies from further north, possibly an earlier form of the Odrysian kingdom. And the Persian presence in the region clearly wasn't all that strong either, since they were only able to muster 13 ships in defense. Cimon was successful once again, ousting the Persian garrisons and laying the groundwork for a series of Athenian colonies in the Chersonese Peninsula before turning west and joining the siege of Thassos. In the years to come, Cimon's fortunes ultimately turned. He supposedly halted plans for an invasion of Macedon when King Alexander I paid him a bribe, an accusation that he hilariously defended successfully by arguing that he was not working in Alexander's interests, but was actually a proxy for Sparta. Within a few years of that trial, Cimon led 4,000 Athenian hoplites to aid Sparta when their enslaved Helot population rose up in revolt. Something went wrong in this expedition, and the Spartans ordered the Athenians out of their territory for somehow offending their city. After the rebellion was defeated, refugees from the Helots were resettled in the Athenian colonies near Corinth, in the first major sign of a rapidly deteriorating relationship between Athens and Sparta. Within a few years, Cimon became so unpopular that he was subjected to ostracism, the Athenian practice of preemptively sentencing prominent figures to ten years of exile. By 460, a border dispute between Athens and Corinth, a member of the Peloponnesian League, erupted into the First Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. But by the time war broke out in Greece, Persia had undergone major changes. See, while the Athenians were besieging their own allies for daring to leave a voluntary alliance, chaos erupted back in the Persian heartland. The king was dead, or maybe the crown prince was dead. A Hyrcanian general was sitting on the throne, or maybe he was just standing next to it. But that is a story for next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find my bibliography, the Achaemenid royal family tree, and the support page, where you can financially support this podcast with everything from one-time donations to affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Patreon is a monthly subscription service where you can support this podcast and get access to bonus content like ad-free listening and additional episodes. But of course, there are free ways to support as well, and they are actually even better. You can share this show on social media and tell everybody how much you love the history of Persia. On Facebook and Instagram, it's at History of Persia Podcast and Twitter is just at History of Persia. Until next time, thank you for listening to The History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.